Prepare for Impact, the EU's energy transition. Interview with Miroslav Lopur, episode 42. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. This week, we speak with Miroslav Lopur. He is a senior manager of the energy and resources team at Deloitte Czech Republic. We have a wide-ranging discussion about how the Czech Republic is preparing for the energy transition. What you'll learn from our conversation is unique perspective on the EU's eastern member states. I found Miroslav has the ability to express in a precise manner both the social and political resistance and reluctance to participate in the energy transition. As you'll hear in our discussion about the coming electric car revolution, Miroslav articulates why there is reluctance in the country to move away from the internal combustion engine and even coal. He discusses an inherent conservatism in former communist countries, which makes politicians and society reluctant to fully participate in a clean energy transition. I think our conversation provides an in-depth understanding of this reluctance to change, not just in the Czech Republic, but in the broader region of Eastern Europe. If I can think of one reason you should listen to our discussion today is to understand why certain countries are slow on the uptake and deployment of policies and technologies that do deliver a clean energy system. There is justification for why countries move slow. Understanding the reason can assist in developing policies and help us all transition to a cleaner future, not just a few countries. As I mentioned, we discuss a range of topics, but threaded through our conversation is the difficulty to change industry and technologies. Regardless of the reluctance, as Miroslav points out, the money from the EU is here and ready to fund the transition. Therefore, the Czech Republic is about to ramp up their activities and join in on the transition. I think our conversation is an important milestone. We need to revisit the expectations expressed in this interview in a few years. Let's see if what the EU is promising in retooling industry and assisting people in regions to move away from coal, for example, does have a positive impact. I'm a bit skeptical on this. More money? I don't know. The intent of the My Energy 2050 podcast is to spread the knowledge about how the energy system can assist our transition towards a greener future. And now for this week's episode. I'm here today with Miroslav Lopur. He's a senior manager of energy and resources at Deloitte in the Czech Republic. He has nine years of experience in corporate energy strategies, energy efficiency, and what we're going to be talking about today as well is electric mobility. So Miroslav, thank you for joining me today. Hello, it's, it's a pleasure. Thank you. And I first want to say thank you to Lucia Kreitsovitsova because she introduced us and she works here with you in Deloitte. Yeah, that's correct. She's our new joiner for this year. Yes, yes. So, and she's a, actually, I need to say, too, a former student of mine, so a graduate of Central European University. Miroslav, uh, to start off, I, I want to ask you a basic question, but how did you and why did you become interested in, in energy? Yeah, I think it's a long story and I don't want to uh, bother this, this interview with it, but uh, basically I think it was couple of coincidences during my during my I would say student times I had an internship in in one of the biggest companies here in chess uh, for a distribution company and um, 
And the second coincidence was when I was uh, traveling on Erasmus. I also had uh, uh, some kind of diploma diploma work, and I decided to work with uh, Vattenfall with it yeah. on uh, mergers and acquisitions. And when I was looking for a job for the first time, I kind of uh, missed the first interview here in Deloitte and the second one was energy. So okay, <laughs> that's okay. how I became an energy expert. Uh-huh. But you, you, had ba- uh, you had this basis in Chess and Vattenfall. Uh, yeah, but uh, it was just a b- broad internship, nothing, nothing really serious, but I think it finally counted. So okay. it's inter- important. And then, then you went to university or this is university kind of interplayed with these. Yeah, it was, it, it was a summer job between, I think, third and fourth year on the university. And the, the second, second episode was even later. So it, it uh-huh. was part of the studies. And, and for the university, what did you study? Uh, I'm originally an um, international trade uh, master here in uh, a school of economics, Prague. And my second second degree is in finance, also a master degree. Okay. Is that the school that's right across yes, the street? Yes, it's, it's right, the, right across the street. <laughs> that's correct. Okay, so you haven't really moved far in life. <laughs> no, actually, <laughs> we a couple of years moved here back from, from Karlin, which is like 10 minutes walk from here. So, but... No, nothing really new. <laughs> okay, okay. But your job has changed, of course. And, yeah. and and since you're in the area of energy and resources, everything is changing constantly. When I was joining energy business, I kind of thought about it as a stable business or everybody was telling, okay, that's the anti-cyclical business, stable economy, etc., etc. And since I joined, I think that everybody is uh, like changing so rapidly and and not sure about what comes that it never counts again yes and when you were at vattenfall you said you worked with mergers and acquisitions like about what time period was that i don't remember correctly but i think it was 2011 um, but i was only working here on the on the on the paper on the, on the diploma diploma paper so i was kind of interviewing uh, vattenfall how they are thinking about their acquisitions because at that time they were moving out of poland selling all those mm-hmm. coal power plants and it was kind of bold move at that time yeah, because at that time the okay the privatization process was over, and then it was kind of like a period of rejigging, like selling their assets and, yeah. and moving out. And, and you know. I think at our region everybody was buying and trying to grow, trying to expand, and trying to grab the assets for the cheap price. But what was interesting on the bottom fall move that was they were selling the coal assets with with a loss which at that time was not a very, very common. And the basic reason was try to go away from an unstable market, which Poland certainly is in energy, and try to get rid of the coal assets. Okay. And for for us, I think today is is a normal, normal, normal music of the day. Wow, that's so interesting. (laughs) I mean, uh, how forward thinking they were. I would say yes, but uh, I think they were a couple of years ahead and they, the loss they made on, on that time, I think, was not reasonable. Mm-hmm. But I think they wouldn't be able to pick up the right time. So, yeah, I yeah. think it, it was a good move at the time. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, that's a really interesting topic then. Okay, and then, so you've, you've seen a lot of this, these changes over the years in, in the region from, okay, not, not privatization process yourself, but, but the post, we could say, privatization period. And then thinking now, maybe we move into the Czech Republic a bit more and the, the energy mix here. 
because it, it's nuclear and coal, lignite. I, I didn't differentiate. Yes. How much lignite is in the system? Uh, I, I think if we are referring to the coal in Czech Republic, it's mostly lignite. Okay. Uh, it's 85% and the 15% is, is uh, steam coal. Okay, okay. And bo But both are mined here. Okay, and the really bad stuff is the lignite. Yeah. Like okay, well maybe maybe for some coal is just bad across the board, but lignite's really really bad. It's like unfiltered cigarettes. Uh yeah, I think so the same, but uh you know for us it's the it's the backbone of the energy system, so we are a bit more conservative. We are not deep in it as as Poland for example is, but certainly it's a topic. It's mm -hmm. a big topic. And are, are there what are the plans for phasing out uh, lignite and coal in general? If we are speaking about the coal as general, um, they're set 2038, but it's mostly for uh, for lignite, uh, for the mining and and use in in, in their energy mix. Uh, it's a decision of the governmental committee, but it's not approved by the government, so it's a bit tricky. But it's 2038, uh, and. Uh, I think the situation will develop a bit a bit uh, quicker and itself in the market uh, because currently the the, the coal uh, is or was in in a big uh, big economical trouble, uh, so everybody is thinking about phasing out more quickly. And for the steam coal, I think it will be even quicker because I think our mines will close up in two thousand twenty two or three or oh. something. It's it's very close. Okay. Okay. So there's there's not a lot of. I mean, because it's important to differentiate between yeah, the Czech Republic and Poland, where in Poland there's a lot of resistance to closing these or uh, not using coal. But in the Czech Republic, there's an acceptance that this has this needs to be phased out. Or uh, again, I think it's a <laughs> bit a bit uh, general, but uh, yeah, it's there's an acceptance. I think it's broader. It's I would say it's an industry consensus that the coal will have to be phased out it will have to be maybe phased out quicker because of the market uh, there's a large debate but i think the debate is already somehow won uh, so i think now it's how and when uh, rather than uh, do we want to do it or not mm -hmm. and in the area of nuclear power because nuclear power is also a big uh, mm -hmm. component uh, what is the discussion there Again, that's a very difficult topic because I think the nuclear power, power debate goes on from 2000 when we finished the Temelin, which is the, the, our second uh, second mm -hmm. nuclear power plant. And in 2012, there was a discussion to uh, build a new blocks there, two new blocks. Uh, it was frozen for a couple of years. Now it's resurfaced. Government is moving in. Uh, the plan is currently to build a new reactor in 2036, I think. Uh, but there's a lot of question, a lot of work, so it's still a question. Okay. So, but if the the coal is is cut down, uh, what's going to replace it? Because now the renewable energy sources, we'll just say that in general, is what like seven percent. So it's it's very low. What what do they expect to? Again, that's that's a, a very complicated topic uh, because. Uh, the coal will stay here for ten years. I f I would I would guess for ten years, and the backbone is certainly still there. So we have time for the transition. Uh, the new nuclear should come in two thousand thirty-five or six. I think it's a reasonable timing. It is achievable if we really want. Then that's mm -hmm. the question: if we really want. And until then, we also have a 
very good base of those two nuclear power plants which are in operation the one will be phasing out in 2037 until then we have time to rebuild and we will be certainly rebuilding to renewables and maybe to gas but the gas is the question but the renewables i can't imagine a scenario where the where the uh, renewables won't be built mm-hmm. so there's a i mean there's quite a lot of space i mean not not in the country i'm but because it's only seven percent now, so get to get up to thirty percent, a lot can be done. That's quite affordable. Uh, certainly, uh, certainly, there's a huge space. We've run a study. Uh, I think you are able to find it on the internet uh, two years ago when we uh, were kind of putting a prognosis that we are built uh, up to nine gigawatts of new uh, new renewables. Mostly of it will be uh, will be photovoltaics, large scale photovoltaics, something like seven seven gigawatts, and we are hoping to get one point five gigawatt of wind. But uh, for the wind, again, I would be a bit skeptical because uh, it's a tough tough energy uh, energy source to be built uh, for, for public resistance. Yeah, for definitely for the public reason and i think here the the resistance is even stronger than for the photovoltaics okay okay yeah maybe we stay away from that we can talk about coal all day but but <laughs> maybe the public resistance around wind is is harder to to work with because there's so many unknowns at the at the local level uh, maybe just to finish this out at the at the national level is there a lot of push for wind or just it's probably quite connected to the local uh, i think uh, we as a sm uh Central Europeans are very conservative in how we see the future and I think it actually translates quite well into the energy business and we are very skeptical about the new technologies even though they are proven. We can be speaking all day how proven they are but I think that the normal typical citizen is very skeptical, very conservative and it's very tough politically to push those through and especially the wind, wind farms because that's a big change in the landscape big change how you see your country and even for us where the biggest potential is in the mountains where i think we kind of use the idea that it's a new a new nature after those acid rains and all those stuff when we were bombarded by those news for two decades uh, having an idea that something new will be built there it's kind of kind of I would say heresy, mm-hmm. I would say, even. Yeah, uh, yeah and maybe, uh, what's the environmental movement? Is, is this connected to the environmental movement or not? It, this is more society in general. I, I would say it's just more society as, as a general. I don't think we have a strong environmental movement. It, it's certainly loud. It's certainly to be seen. It's seen to in in the coal debate, in maybe also in nuclear, but from different perspective. Here, I think it's a general understanding how you would like your country to be seen. Okay. And that's not uh, part uh, of it. When it comes to the conservativeness in society in Central Europe, because I think from my experience in Hungary and Poland and other countries, it, 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 it's actually a quite a good description. How does that translate into the energy policies that governments can do? I think it translates into the uh, energy policy quite a lot. It slows it down also, almost to the glacier movements. It's, I think, 
what we've done in the policy side or on the legislation side is almost nothing for the last 10 years or near to nothing. I don't want to be too, too, too pushy, but we could be definitely more ambitious, more pushing. Even the debate could be led in a different, uh, I would say, tone or mood because the conservativeness slows us down almost to, to nothing. So um, I think that the boldest movements are still ahead of us. Or I would say the market will surprise us how quickly those changes can be made. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how, uh, from the EU perspective, maybe the policy agenda coming from the European Union, this includes the Parliament and the Commission, the changes over time, and especially these these goals like 2035, 2050, how is that being translated uh, within the market in the Czech Republic? I think we are pushing against this uh, this trend, um, sometimes actively, sometimes passively, but, uh, you know, we are just, in the last 10 years, I think we were doing just enough to to supply the required targets to promote the new sources to uh, grant subsidies. Uh, So we are moving very, very slowly. And uh, on the the market side, we are moving slowly. On the political side, the debate is, I would say, almost the same for the 10 years. There are some changes, there are some some green routes, Mm -hmm. but it will take time. But... You know, there's so much money for the next 10 years that, again, the market will show us that it can change very quickly and the money will speak. Uh, when you say the money, is that EU money? or Yeah, is that... it's the EU money, the subsidies, the modernization fund and all those billions of euros. Okay, that scares me, <laughs> <laughs> actually. So, um, and where, where do you, maybe you're involved in this as a consultancy. Um, are there ideas where this money is going to go and what the companies need to do to qualify for this? Uh, certainly. Uh, I would say that the EU legislation actually provides quite a good framework for that. And for for that reason, we are even changing. So uh, good, good, bless that. And, um, you know, the, the biggest mover uh, will be the modernization fund, which is actually mm-hmm. uh, designed for transition from coal to to. to renewables and modern energy and for us it's a it's a tool for modernizing all those coal um, heating sources uh, coal power plants and building those renewables like photovoltaic so uh, the the program is actually launched now it's collecting the first uh, binding bits Uh, the money there are sufficient for a large transition so we are we are kind of hoping that it will start uh, for, in a good way. Uh, but certainly, I, again, next 10 years, I think, will be very dramatically changing. So I can imagine that the fund will, will transform twice or even three times during this, this decade. So I think we will start somewhere. But uh, I really believe that the future will be a bit different more wind, uh, more hydrogen, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I really like to talk about society. And, I, and my, my question then is, with this money coming from the EU and the social conservativism in society, what, it, what is the impact or what is the idea of how this money can benefit coal regions now or in the future? I think there are two sides to, to, to this question. 
First one is how the society will see it. And for f I'm really glad that most of this debate is very technical or very uh, energy-oriented, so it kind of bypasses the typical typical person, typical voter, and typical citizen. So I think nobody really sees those opportunities on the, on the ground level, which I think for a certain level is good. Uh, the second uh, question to, to this is uh, the coal regions itself. Uh, because the the biggest beneficiary uh, will be those uh, coal regions, certainly because most of the coal industry is there. The transformation is focused on those. And there's also a Just Transition Fund, which is the second leg of the transition, uh, which is, re I would say, six times smaller than the Modernization Fund. So it's tiny in comparison, but it's more focused on society, on those trends of no new industries which certainly will, will transform those regions away from energy to, to a different industries. Mm -hmm. So there's uh, money for, and we, maybe we don't want to go down there. I'm just guessing like money for retraining and um, infrastructure development. Yes, that's the original idea uh, of this, of this uh, Just Transition Fund. Uh, I think each of those regions has a different strategy. It's it's a local local strategy. So I think it's actually very suited to to those politicians, those people in those regions to to kind of bring their own vision. And I've seen details of two plans here in Czech Republic. One is more focused on uh, on um, touristic uh, touristic history of the region, uh, building some kind of cultural things. The second uh, is more focused on new industries uh, like hydrogen, like um, batteries. We will see how it will play out, but the transformation will be big. Okay. And, and maybe then we, we kind of move on to the, uh, the transformation itself, actually. And <laughs> you mentioned hydrogen. I didn't ask you this before, but... What, what what does hydrogen look like in the Czech Republic? Is there some, or you don't you don't know about this? But uh, we are really at the beginning. Okay, at the beginning. but uh -huh. I, in the past, I never seen such an interested interest in one single topic as hydrogen in the last I would say six months. Yes. Everybody is asking about hydrogen, how the hydrogen future will look like, how much it cost, what's the development, what's the market. So it's a big topic, and I think it will be a big transformation again. It's kind of like the gas topic 10 years ago or something. Certainly. Maybe we could move to uh, maybe the Czech industry itself and how well it's positioned for even uh, electric cars, uh, battery production. Uh, overall, what, what is the industry doing in this area? I would start maybe from the, from the automotive itself, uh, because the Czech Republic is very strong on the automotive. We have... Uh, half a million uh, employees in the automotive sector. Uh, most of it is in supply chain, but uh, we also have, I think, five factories for um, assembling of those cars. Uh, basically, we are a car car nation, and it's a big topic. Uh, how do EV will play out with this? Because it's certainly a high risk that quite a lot of this industry will be lost that uh, there's a huge adaptation ahead of us. So again, as we are very conservative, even our politicians are kind of pushing against uh, those changes. But I think it's inevitable. 
And again, we've run a study uh, last month uh, okay. about about the battery production. And in, in that study, we kind of were trying to persuade the, the, the business here that the change of for batteries is inevitable in, and everybody else is trying to get into this industry. So we have to be there also. Otherwise, the, the game will be lost and the, the industry will move somewhere else. Uh, basically, you you are active in the Central European region, and Poland already has the factory for batteries. Hungary has two. Yeah. There are plans for different ones. Germany is building uh, a number of them, and uh, we have the opportunity to have have our own factory, quite a big one, uh, in five years, and that's a huge opportunity which we should not miss. Mm-hmm. So in five years, but the other countries are ahead. Is there a race for battery, or is there so much? Um, there's going to be so much of a need for the supply of batteries that it's not a problem. I think the the right answer is both. Uh, the, our study actually finds out that in 2035, when the the current Fit for 55 bans the sales of uh, uh, in combustion engines, uh, the demand will be will be huge. So uh, the market is still open. The new entrants could freely build their com- the, the, their factories. Uh, the demand will be growing since 2025. So the risk is not not that big. Everybody is chasing to build those because even the 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 car companies has to secure their supply for the com- for, for the coming decade. So it's a really a race. But those who will be there, who will have the first, I would say, small factories can expand into the larger one. Imagine Tesla. Uh, Tesla built the first gigafactory, which was supposed to be one gigawatt hours of production. Now they are expanding and now the gigafactory is actually a multi, multi-gigawatt factory. Now we are talking about factories with production of 30 to 40 gigawatt hours per year, which is an enormous step. So the market is there. But the factories are actually getting bigger, so you have to be quick. Mm-hmm. We're talking about this energy transition, and I'm just wondering, in one area we haven't spoken about, then we, we just spoke about coal, coal regions, and the redevelopment that's necessary and the money going into those regions. And as we're learning now, you know, electric cars do require less parts, therefore less workers, and this is a big problem in Germany as well. What, what would be the impact then on... For, for jobs, and I guess there's no holding back electric vehicles, but how, how can this transition be smoothed out? Or uh, I think that's the, that's the current debate, or actually the point we are trying to make here in Deloitte uh, for this year's. It's try to make this two trends, the, the coal phase out, and I would say new business or new opportunities, linked together as much as possible because that actually gives you the space to uh, transfer those i would say even very skilled workers from the coal uh, industry either from the power plants or from the mines into the new uh, new businesses either renewables battery production and those stuff Uh, if you look into the auto industry it will be and more difficult because i think the transition there have to be even bigger because one thing is to produce the batteries that's also a requirement for, of skilled labor but it's a different skills than in the typical 
production of parts and the parts we are currently producing are very different from what the EVs uh, need in the future so the transformation there will have to be bigger so try to align those two forces as much as possible and then I think you are safe if not you are in a huge risk part of it is education but again it it depends how we see the education typically you would uh, see the education for the young ones ending at 20 or 24 in the university but I think for here we are more speaking about education of already skilled workers we have to reskill them try to make them more flexible maybe adjust their skills from I would say very different industries let's imagine someone who's in the assembly line for a car and then goes for the assembly of the batteries it's a completely different kind of skills and like knowledge you need for those those industries so i think uh, it's possible but it will bring a different education than what we typically see under it mm-hmm. and so there's yeah i'm just thinking eu money <coughs> national money that's necessary and then the societal kind of buy-in of this as well even by the workers themselves that are facing to lose, lose their jobs. I was wondering, maybe we, we can look at the current uh, problems in the energy sector and discuss this as also part of the transition. And is this a warning for things to come, that, that people, companies, have to be much more adaptive to disruptions? Uh, I'm a bit worried there because, I, as I said, I'm an economist. I can see change during the centuries and it doesn't scare me uh, but there's one different difference between now and then now if you look on where we are on the tr- transition from the soviet era from the old thinking i would say to the new thinking we are some- somewhere in the middle we are kind of disappointed that how the change went uh, what the results brought and but there's also one important factor. We have very low unemployment and um, we have scarcity of well-educated, well-trained and people with vision. And for those transition, there will be enormous need of those experts with vision, with uh, willingness to, to move forward, to, to don't look back, look forward and step step ahead so i think this is the biggest risk of the transition it's not the sources it's not the feasibility it's the people and it's the mindset and i think here if i would have only a single shot to to give to the politicians what they should do they should prepare the people for the transition and try to i would say ignite bravery because that's what we need and the rest is there basically Mm-hmm. And and actually, this is a yeah, this is a really important point you, you bring on that the politicians have to prepare the people for this. But there's also a lot of room for politicians to take advantage of the people and say this is too costly of a transition, too costly or too risky. Uh, as I said, we are already against the the electric cars. We, as the biggest producer of cars, are against the new trend in car industry, and that actually always brings me. Do you want to? To 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 and 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 no, do you want to uh, create a steam engine for for or an electric uh, engine for for the railways? That's a question. 
if you would stick up with the first, I think you will be making nice creations, nice uh, technology, but it's obsolete. And I think we have to move away from that. And again, I think that's the hardest step. I think that's the next step of our transition to, I would say, to the Western economy. We have to move away from what, what's proven and move to uncharted waters. Yeah, I really like a comparison of the train of the steam engine. Because if you go to like a train museum, uh, right, you see these massive steam engines that were produced towards the end, right, when then they were phased out because of diesel. Uh, but th that's it, right? They were they knew how to make these steam engines and do so in a really big scale. They were really big, but then the diesel just displaced them. The yeah, new, new technology. I agree. It's a, it's uh, a fascinating technology. The the uh, steam steam engine. Always, I'm I'm without speech when I see those monstrous machines. But uh, do you want them to be on on the tracks today? Yes, once a year. But I want to get there as fast as possible, and for that, I I want to have a DGV or something like that. It's it's a completely different mindset. Yes. So you got to come to Budapest, and I'll take you to the train museum. <laughs> there. There's probably one here, isn't there? Or yeah, yeah. Okay, there's a really good one in Budapest. <laughs> so okay, uh, maybe, maybe we'll get Deloitte to sponsor a study of steam engines and the phase uh, with diesel. So. <laughs> I mean, it's more historical book, maybe, rather yeah. than a consulting document. But still, it's, it's a great point, I think. Things. My, my question is, what about energy efficiency? And this is not as an interesting topic, but, or, I don't know, as, as big as, you know, producing steam engines and this transition and cars, electric cars. But what about uh, the investment to... Um, into energy efficiency in buildings or even by industry. Even for, for myself, who did a couple of uh, energy efficiency projects during the time, uh, it's not a, a big topic. And I think it's heavily overlooked, especially here in Czech Republic. It requires small changes by basically everyone. And again, it's touch upon the nature, whether you want to do it or not. So you have to persuade quite a lot of per person. Uh, people and I think we are missing that uh, here. That it's not common to think in those topics every, when you are, for example, tr uh, talking about insulation of buildings with normal people. They say, "Okay, I don't care. It's it doesn't co it costs too much. It doesn't bring that much value. It doesn't bring that much much value, but it brings constant value through quite a long time." And I think we are missing that point. Uh, but again. I don't want to be that pessimistic. The market is actually changing slowly. Everybody is kind of insulating on their own. And the photovoltaics are going back to the rooftops. Uh, new new uh, boilers are installed every year. So it's a, it's a slower process, less visible. It's there. It could be definitely more promoted, uh, more pushed by the politicians or people themselves. But uh, it's there and it's moving. Mm -hmm. Do you think this spike in, in gas prices and electricity prices uh, in Europe uh, will push m more or make people realize more the benefits and the, the cost benefits in energy efficiency? Certainly. Uh, you know, even a couple of our clients were very surprised uh, with, with the spike in prices, either electricity or gas. I would say it's... Uh, with hanging trousers around your ankles, it's that that metaphor really at that point. 
And now everybody's chasing the gas and electricity on the market to have it uh, supplied next year, which is in, in eight weeks or something like that. Oh, yeah. But um, apart from that, they realize they're very dependent. So in the next topic on the list is uh, local local uh, power sources, local uh, heat sources like photovoltaics, CHP, and stuff like that. Uh, I think the insulation and, and stuff, uh, which is, I would say, um, focus on the buildings will come later, but now is the right time to actually promote it. Uh, the, all the arguments that it's costly, it doesn't pay back so quickly, it's difficult, now the, the, the topic is over. It's either you have it or you don't. Uh-huh. So they're looking much more local, not using imported gas for their production. Yes, I think they realize that they are very, um, uh, very dependent on the market, on on the external forces. And if you are a producer of car parts, we already talked about it. You don't want to care about your energy. You want to have your energy fixed forever. Yes. And now they find out that their energy is not fixed, and they have to really take care about it. And they don't want to. Well, that's really scary. I mean, if you're a car parts manufacturer, right? Essentially, you you have a contract for your parts. How much it's gonna you're gonna get paid for it? But then their price of energy goes up. Yeah, your profits is gone. The profits are gone, <laughs> and that's the that's the light motif uh, for those two months. And uh, nobody really knows what's the profitability for next year. Not because. Uh, the Škoda is not, not working again, but uh, because the prices are so high that you are not competitive anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe more broadly, and maybe, uh, I'm not sure if this is your area or not, but uh, the supply chain disruption, maybe we could talk about gas as a whole. You know, how, how is that impacting the Czech Republic? Uh, they're able to, uh, as a, as a um, former uh, ComCon country, maybe I'll phrase it that way, uh, th- they were able to import gas um, from the Soviet Union. And now with uh, LNG, I'm assuming in Poland, wh- what is the, how, how are they getting gas into the um, country now? <clears throat> I would start with one of the professors told me, um, oil is about money, gas is about politics. And I think this quote actually underlines it quite well. Uh, I don't think that now or in 2021 it actually matters whether we are Germany or Czech Republic. You have the same rules of the play, which is the gas market of Europe. And as we see on the on the on the prices, currently there's a huge distress, and the distress is because the, the Russians are not supplying that well or are kind of playing out the long game. Uh, there's a rumor that there are uh, Russian leased gas storages in Europe which are empty. For example, our Czech Republic supplier has the gas storage filled up to 90%. So where's the distress coming from? I don't blame the uh, allowances for the high prices. It's certainly gas, only gas. And the question is how long it will take. But uh, also the correct answer is uh, Europe enjoyed low prices of gas for two decade for a decade at least uh, we were not competing with asia so now we are on par and the question is how much you want to be dependent on external suppliers 
Europe is always dependent on gas supply from outside, either Russia, Algeria, or even Norway, if we count it as a European Union. So uh, we have to do more. And I think the last decade showed us that we have to move quicker because a lot of projects is on paper, but are still not commissioned yet. Gas projects. Gas projects, either LNG terminals, either, mm -hmm. either interconnections and all those stuff. So, so uh, but there's two th schools of thoughts. A, we should just not, we should stop building gas infrastructure. Or, but you're saying actually these infrastructure projects need to be realized and we have to finish them quickly. I think the interesting point here is, and I was trying to, to show it to the gas infrastructure players two or three years ago, is for gas you have time, I think, till 2035. After that, the gas should be dead if you want to move to 2050 zero emissions. So you have limited time to use your infrastructure maybe redevelop it in future for i don't know uh, uh green gas or hydrogen so you are in a tough situation how to develop the infrastructure in a way that it actually pays you off uh, and um, brings the, the desired benefit on the market but what i've what i'm critic uh, i'm skeptical about why we haven't moved forward is for example, why don't we have the connection with Poland and Baltics? It's a needed infrastructure from a security point of view, and it's still not online. It will be online, I think, next year or the, the year after. And the same can be done with Ukraine, with uh, south, uh, south, uh, north-south connection in Central Europe. Those lines are still not finished. Yes, yes. But Hungary is connected to South Stream now, so... <laughs> You know, and again, uh, that's gas is about politics. I think some of those big projects, especially those Russian projects, either Nord Stream, South Stream, or um, uh, those uh, going via Turkey, are more political than the actual uh, market beneficial. It still has the same source of gas. It doesn't bring you a new gas to the market. LNG brings a new gas to the market. New new findings in um, in Israel brings you new gas into the market, but not the Russian gas via new routes. And that's, I think, f something which is lost today. Russia has enough infrastructure to bring additional gas to the market, to the Europe. They don't need a new Nord Stream. It's just more convenient for them. That's all the only only reason uh, why... Uh, they are pushing for it. But, but this North Stream, it's showing the exposure of Germany to Russian um, uh, political, I don't know, how to, uh, it, it shows that Germany is exposed to the politics in Russia. Uh, I think that's a very peculiar thing for us Central Europeans because we see uh, tides with Eastern hegemons, either Russia or Chinese as uh, black or white. For Germany, I think it's very gray. Um, I think they are very able to to stay strong on the political side, to push Russia where it should be. But on the gas side, if you look deeper and deeper, you find out there's a very strong link between Germans and, and Russian. There's a, a Russian-Germans money there. There's a Russian-German politics there. 
and the industry is also very looking forward for this gas and you know german energy vende is basically also dependent on new sources of gas so for us in central europe it doesn't make that much sense but it's but is it something that people in central europe knew anyways but maybe the germans underestimated or i don't think the germans underestimated it okay, i think okay. for them it's still available it's still okay. not that expensive we have to look at from the perspective of a german who has a more bigger salary than us yes. i would say three or four times even uh, and i think for us we are still looking on the dependency a bit more but again for i would say czech republic it was a be- the Nord stream is a benefit and i think the political debate was it is a beneficial if you look for poland or uh or ukraine you would find a completely different picture yeah and yeah. especially polish ones yes yeah it, yeah bypassing the country yeah and not uh, doing something cheaper overland to get to germany yeah or even extending the current pipeline there to, to as was planned okay um miroslav i don't want to take up too much of your time and we're right on time now but um um i have two questions uh, to finish off here, and what one is actually it's a basic question, and maybe I should have asked it at the beginning. What is the role of a consultancy like Deloitte when you're working with clients? I mean, I mean this is a really broad question. <laughs> this is why I'm my apologies. I should have asked it at the very beginning. But um, a lot of my students, for example, kind of think about working for consultancies, or they actually go on uh, like Lucia and and work for them. And for I mean, I kind of just know, but but maybe. From your perspective, working for Deloitte for so long, you know what what is the role of consultancy? How do you see your job? I would say the the, the consultancy in energy business is a very specific topic. The, the consultancy in in IT looks completely different. For us, I think there are two big and interesting areas. One is the policy making, when you can be an I would say even important player in how the policy will look like and how will the country develop. That's what I find interesting on the energy consultancy and why I'm where I am. And the second topic is helping business to navigate the the topics we are discussing. Because from each topic we've mentioned in the last hour, um, there's a, enormous opportunities, enormous risks, and those companies don't understand them always in that detail as we do. So you are kind of um guide on on the on the trip and as i said it's very different than from the consultancy in the it but energy it has a lot light lot of a lot of opportunities mm-hmm. yeah exactly we talked about politics economics business so a broad broad range of issues and specializations but you kind of have to learn all these different areas to to talk about it well i think to be proficient in energy really well on the strategic level you have to understand all those topics and that's the difficult part because if you don't know what the policy looks like and what's the politics behind it it's very hard to to give the advice to your client invest in those divest divest those change your company in this way because in two two years it could be completely different Mm -hmm. i agree it's great and my final question is and this may be a hard one but i think we've had a really good conversation that leads us up to this is what kind of energy system do you think we'll see in 2050 (laughs) and well maybe we'll just keep it to the czech republic uh again i i I'm a big fan of large European market, which actually 
gives you the ability to transform it. The biggest flexibility always comes with size and with the, the infrastructure you've built. So for me, 2050 is a very flexible, much complex system than we have right now, maybe even escaping the, the understanding of a single person. We are now even moving to IoT and modeling and like I think this will be more important with time. So I see quite a lot of sources, big big ones, small ones. Uh, I can imagine a backbone of nuclear, but that will be a very big issue for the West, Western Europe. And uh, flexible renewables, a lot of flexibility in storages, so batteries, hydrogen, uh, maybe other technological parts. So I think the change is diversification making more ties more links and kind of hoping that the bigger system is more resilient than the smaller ones mm -hmm. okay great all right well miroslav thank you very much for taking the time to meet with me it was a pleasure for me thank you for having me thank you thank you thank you for joining us for this episode we produce the my energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting edge research and the people building our clean energy system if you enjoyed this episode or any episode please share it the more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make it. You can follow us on LinkedIn, where we are the most active on the MyEnergy2050 webpage, or on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.